it is very, very difficult to get feedback. The people who succeed are able to receive that hard critical feedback and know that if that person truly has our best interests in heart, they can respond to that feedback and then do better. The art of giving feedback and the art of receiving feedback and doing something productive with it, that is really at the heart of what a good mentor-mentee relationship is. Dr. Thomas Varghese Jr. is the Associate Chief Medical Quality Officer and Chief Value Officer at the Huntsby Cancer Institute and Chief of General Thoracic Surgery at the University of Utah. Dr. Varghese is a national leader in minimally invasive applications for general thoracic surgery. Recognized by Castle Connolly as one of America's top docs and is ranked in the top 10% by Press Ganey for patient satisfaction scores. His research interests bridge the world of educational research and health services research, specifically in the arena of optimizing performance at the patient-surgeon system levels. He created the Strong for Surgery program, which is now a formal quality improvement program of the American College of Surgeons and active at 331 clinical sites across the nation. Dr. Varghese holds national leadership positions in the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, Thoracic Surgery Directors Association, American College of Surgeons, and the Society of University Surgeons. Dr. Varghese is active on social media and is a deputy editor of Digital Media and Scholarship at, for the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today, we're very excited about our interview with Dr. Thomas Verghese. Peter, before we jump into it, how's everything going in the lab? Everything in the lab is going, you know, ups and downs, side to sides. Sometimes your data throws you for a loop, but you just got to, you know, keep a practical mind and, and look at the data as it is. And that's kind of where I'm at, you know, coming in on my second year of graduate school. Awesome. Dr. Verghese, how are you doing? I'm doing great. No. It's an honor to join both of you today, and uh, yes, uh, remember those days very well, sitting in the lab, just praying and hoping some result will come back, and then three weeks later, realizing that all your experiments for the last three weeks just went up in smoke. So, totally oh, are you a... Are no, you I, I did some... I, I did some... No, I'm not a PhD, but I did do some transplant okay. immunology research during my general surgery training days, so remember those days, and there's, there's a reason why I don't do basic science research anymore, so God bless you guys. <laughs> So uh, when Peter and I were doing some research on your background and reading your bio and history, it's, it's very evident that you're passionate about medicine and about leadership in medicine. And so we wanted to ask you, where did that passion for leadership come about? And have you always been interested in leadership or is that something that came about throughout your training? Yeah, no, great, great question. I mean, I think that uh, I'll, I'll just start briefly with, uh, you know, my background is highly unusual. Uh, as many people know out there, you know, I was born in India, but I came to the U.S. when I was a year old. And then after my sophomore year in high school, my family actually moved back to India. And then I lived there for nine years, went to college med school there, and then came back to the U.S. to do my surgical training and then my CT surgical training. And so one of the advantages I guess I had by living in different cultures and seeing a vast, you know, spectrum of socioeconomic uh, backgrounds was really trying to figure out what the importance of leadership was in terms of really trying to drive culture for the better to make not only ourselves better, but trying to make our communities a lot better around that. You could probably see, or the listeners obviously won't be able to see, but we're being interviewed and I'm sitting in my home office right now and I've got a ton of books right behind me. And that's because 
I think all of this is a lifelong journey. And I think that, you know, even though we all like to say that we're the best leaders we are today, part of this process is always seeking out where the best practices are, where the emerging evidence is, where are things that we can help incorporate into ourselves. And so I think that because of my unique background, because of the opportunity I had to connect with a lot of different types of leaders across the world, different cultures that I've been in, it just was kind of a natural that leadership became one of my favorite topics of all time. Now that you're sitting in a leadership position and you have reflected a little bit on your career, I want to ask who has been a mentor for you at maybe a particular formative stage of your of your life or your training? And what about that mentor made that re- your relationship with that person special? Yeah, no, that's a great, great, great question. I think, uh, uh, you know, my earliest mentors were my parents. I mean, uh, but both my, my dad and mom are, are still alive right now. Um, and, you know, as with many first generation immigrants, you know, they did a lot of sacrifices for, you know, on behalf of bettering their family. You know, um, my my mom was pregnant with me. I'm the oldest of three in my family. When my dad got that golden ticket of a student visa to come to the U.S., uh, you know, but then he quickly realized that if he was going to do that, he wouldn't be present at the time of my birth. But but he did that, you know, and I, I think that, you know, those are the types of stories you hear from a lot of different immigrant families. You know, when you're traveling and trying to be in the greatest country you could potentially be in, uh, you know, people make a lot of sacrifices. And so, um, you know, and then after I was born, you know, I had to wait a year for, for my green card. And so my dad didn't physically see me till I was a year old. Um, and so I think that, you know, there are a lot of extraordinary things that my parents did, but, you know, a, a lot of things that they did, I would also kind of incorporate into leadership philosophies, you know, trying to make sure that, uh, you know, they didn't only focus on themselves, they were building something better for their family and those uh, that that were under their care. Uh, and, you know, I learned that. And then as I grew up, you know, many teachers, you know, one of my first, you know, mentors who, uh, you know, recently passed away was Sister Noreen, who was my grade school principal. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. She passed away at the age of, uh, you know, in her 90s. I had an opportunity really recently to to talk to her before she passed away this past year. And one of the things that she instilled in me was to never stop looking for best practices. So, you know, we went to a Catholic grade school and she was talking about, you know, how Jesus used proverbs or storytelling to deliver different lessons and then as as an example she said you know don't confine yourself just to the bible start looking in greek mythology and different aspects in history where they also started talking about storytelling the small little examples that she did and that instilled in me this voracious appetite to always be in our library and my mom always makes fun of me that there were books always all around um i think my wife is grateful for the fact that she thinks that you know kindle and you know so, uh, you know, smartphone apps are the best thing in the world because otherwise our phone home would be like just <laughs> flooded with different books and everything out there. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, that was an example of, you know, small little lesson right now. My current mentors right now, you know, I have three main mentors uh, on, on the academic professional side. You know, they include Bob Higgins, who's, you know, the president of uh, uh, Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, you know, Doug Wood, who was my former uh, boss over at the, at the University of Washington, and Rich Prager, just recently retired from the University of uh, Michigan. Three different, completely different styles of you know leadership and mentorship, but each of them, when I connect in with them and or I, when they ask me, each of them kind of come at it with different angles. 
you know, you know, some of them are asking me, okay, what have you done to further yourself today? Other people are asking me, hey, have you taken time to connect with your family? You know, small little different things. And so I think I've had the privilege of having lots and lots of different types of mentors. Some are situational, you know, sometimes, you know, like a Dr. Julie Freischlag, who's the CEO at Wake Forest University. You know, I many years ago, I, when I was thinking about a different transition in terms of a leadership role, I had an opportunity to talk to her about, you know, the pros and cons of taking this leadership position on and she was able to give me some timely advice and that was like a situational mentorship thing as compared to kind of a more long-term mentorship so I, I think that it gives you the example of I had many mentors They're, they've been involved in different aspects in our life there's no one true definition of mentorship which is which is the best thing in the world when you go about finding mentors and throughout your life has it been kind of a happenstance thing or have you spent time looking at individuals who are in positions that you might want to occupy or you might want to emulate and reaching out to those people to provide mentorship or to feed into you as well? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think it would be the honest answer is probably both. Sometimes it's the circumstances of where you happen to be, um, you know, at a particular university, at a different a particular institution, maybe amongst, uh, you know, con networking connections through a circle of friends. Sometimes it is, you know, sitting back and trying to figure out uh, who are those people that you admire and who are those people that you want to be. The best thing about, I think, our interconnected world today is, is that you don't have to be confined to your local environment. You can extend beyond that, you know. And so the people or the social circle connections that you have could be on, you know, social media. You know, our interview today would not have happened if Dr. Josh Hartzell who all of us, you know, we follow each other on social media, kind of did a mutual introduction. This podcast wouldn't happen today. And I think that that's kind of, you know, capitalizing on a fortuitous connection or that networking. And so um, now we have to be careful. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, the positives of social media are your the ability to interconnect. The negatives are a lot of people are only showing their best selves or you don't really truly get to know them. And I, I think that we have to, Think about that for mentorship as well. Sometimes somebody that you admire, you may be think, admiring different aspects, but it might be only slices of their personality or slices of who they are. And that's why I'm a big believer in not truly only having one mentor. You may have different types of mentors for different aspects of your lives. You know, you may have a mentor uh, that guides how you engage with people on a social front. You may have uh, mentors that uh, help you do, you know, I'm a thoracic surgeon, so it helped me do better in terms of my surgical skills or my surgical practice. I may have a different type of mentor that, you know, helps me in terms of some of the quality work and some of the leadership roles that I have at the Huntsman Cancer Institute of the University of Utah. And so I think that that's totally fine. It's just more of the ability to capitalize on both. So getting back to the question, and I think it is absolutely where you're at, who you have, but it's, it's always nice to have those reach goals, you know, look out there and see who are the people that you admire, what aspects of their character or their work do you admire, and then try to figure out how can I incorporate that into, into my own personality or my own leadership path. You talked about having many different mentors for different aspects of your life. I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into this because I know that I have multiple mentors for, you know, I'm a dual degree student and I need mentors on the MD side, I need mentors on the PhD side. I need mentors to understand how to synergize both. And I know in these relationships that I've developed, 
Some have happened through like an official mentorship program, but others have kind of happened organically. And I wanted to get your two cents on whether or not you prefer one way or the other. What's the pros and the cons of going through something that's more formalized versus letting you know a relationship develop organically with somebody that, that is really invested in you? Yeah, I, I think to help truly help answer that question, um, there's a couple other factors that you have to bring into perspective. So one is uh, the element of time. You know, organic relationships seem like you would make deeper, richer relationships. The downside, though, is it takes a lot of time. And uh, the other element about it is, do you have experience or not? You know, when you are a first year medical student or a PhD student, uh, you don't have the luxury of having a lot of wisdom, right? It's another brand new environment that you're into. You have no idea. I mean, how much time did it take to figure out? you know, what libraries have, you know, the, the best places to study or where, where to get coffee and it's just small, simple things. You don't have that luxury of time. So when you're starting brand new or you're very inexperienced, I personally love the concept of formalized mentorship programs. So, you know, I, I in part of my role is I've had the ability of recruiting and hiring a lot of new faculty. So in that setting, oftentimes it, it helps them to get started, to have a formal mentor. Now, the good thing about mentorship roles are, a mentor or mentor roles are, they're not permanent. You know, they can, you know, it's great to have that, but that could be a starting point. And so I think that in the beginning, when you're not sure what, what is the definition of success or what are the pitfalls to watch out for, great to have formal mentors. But as you gain more experience, or you start taking a look around or starting to learn more about the environment around you, I think that's when it becomes... Uh, an active process, you know, of uh, actively looking out in the environment that you're in and then trying to find out, like, uh, it, are there better mentors for myself? I think what we failed to probably, we should mention, you know, my definition of mentorship is really, it's a very simple definition. It's somebody who has more knowledge or skills that is sharing that knowledge or skills with somebody else who doesn't have that particular knowledge and skills. And if you simplify that to that level a mentor does not always have to be older than you. For example, in the field of surgery, you know, many a times, you know, uh, sometimes the new latest advanced skills like minimally invasive skills or robot surgical skills, oftentimes our younger cohorts end up learning those first. And so you can imagine a senior surgeon who's practiced, who's interested in learning robot surgical skills, their mentor for that particular aspect may end up being a junior faculty member who has those particular skills and sharing that. And that still counts, counts as a mentor-mentee relationship. Obviously, with other different things like building an academic career or building a, you know, a, a scientific career, you will inevitably end up learning from somebody who has more years in the game and end up learning from somebody older. But I think that truly deep diving down to figure out what the true definition of mentor and menteeship is I think will help. The other aspect, of course, is that menteeship is not a passive role. Both of these roles, being a good mentor and being a good mentee, are very active, dynamic processes. You know, uh, you know, a mentor, you know, you know, they really, truly, uh, you know, thrive when their mentee or somebody who they share their information not only learns that information but takes it to the next step. That's what they love. They love seeing their mentees succeed. But mentees control aspects of the mentor-mentee relationship because they're very active and invested in their, their, their career. And so when they show up to meetings, they're well-prepared or they're, they're taking notes on their action items. They're not waiting for the day before the meeting to actually you know, do the 
work. They're doing work in between. And mentors love seeing that dynamic relationship. So there's active participation on, on both parts of the diet. We definitely want to get into uh, what makes a great mentor and mentee um, a little bit later. I want to go back to, you mentioned formalized mentorship programs. And Peter and I have had some of those in medical school. And I think for me specifically, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Peter's along the same lines, sometimes they go really well, and then sometimes they can fall flat. And with a big class, our medical schools, uh, 300 students per class is one of the biggest wow, in the country. That's a big class. <laughs> and so matching people with others who are interested in the same things and will connect, oftentimes it's difficult, which makes some of these programs a little bit less effective. And so from your standpoint, how do you create a good formalized program so that mentors benefit and mentees benefit and everybody can gain something from their experience? Yeah, that's a very, very, very uh, challenging question, but a very insightful question. I, I think that part of it is identifying overall goals. You know, so what is the overall goal? You know, you know I, I think that, that helps because if, if during that first meeting, when you're meeting with the mentor and mentee, if they can at least identify, hey, here are the one or two goals we want to achieve this coming year. Like if everybody's on the same page, that'll at least start the conversation. Uh, I think that sometimes we try too, you know, too hard to be perfect right from the beginning. This is a messy process. By definition, it's a mess. Human interactions are messy, right? I mean, think about the friends that you have in your life. They're highs and lows, you know, peaks and valleys. But but part of that is that human relationship. mentor menteeship is also messy at times. But if you can identify what the goals are. So let's say, let's take about a med school class. Maybe the goals are is, hey, how to study in med school is completely different from the way that you've studied in years past. In years past, there was a limited amount of information that you had to master. And then you took a test and you were graded on the test. Well, in the world of medicine and surgery, the amount of information is infinite, right? I mean, it's just, there's no way to master every single aspect of that information. So you're getting fed with a fire hose of knowledge at all times. So in that process, maybe the part is, is that, hey, here's some better study skills that I can tell you about. Like you, you need to skim, you need to get big concepts. Don't get caught up in the high details and everything like that. Don't, it is not like re reading a medical textbook. It's not like reading a novel. You don't go page by page by page. If you did that, you're never going to get anywhere. You have to kind of skim and see what the headings are, look at the figures, try to figure out what are the main points, and then go back in and then pick and then do test questions. That's a different way of studying than if you were to pick up your favorite novel and read it cover to cover. And so maybe that's part of the thing. It's maybe goal day one, your first meeting is I'm just going to try to teach you better ways of different ways how studying in med school is completely different from what you've done before. Maybe that's a goal that you want to help achieve. Maybe another goal is, is that trying to figure out, uh, you know, you're, maybe the mentor that you're in your second year is trying to help you pick out what specialty you want to do. And part of that could be is they themselves may be in that specialty, but maybe they're like, hey, I'm not a pediatrician, but here's three other great pediatricians that I think that could give you a better insight into what their actual practice is. And it's three different types of practices. One is a pediatrician who has, you know, a critical care background, who does rotations there, but then has an active, you know, bioscience lab. Or here's another pediatrician who's a community pediatrician. Or here's a third pediatrician who has active leadership roles in their institute 
uh, institute, but at the same time, they have an active clinical. Three different completely paradigm, you know, paradigms in terms of how pediatricians practice is, but just making the connections, that's what the mentor's role is. And so I think getting back to the question, I, I think that you can't be perfect try to figure out what the overall goals are. I mean, and so like when I meet with the mentee, the first meeting, that's what we're just trying to figure out big picture goals. What is your big picture goal for this year? What is your big picture goal? You know, if we're going to be in this relationship for multiple years. What is your big picture role in, in a few years? You know, what, what are those big picture goals? And then you start breaking it down and then figuring out and then try to figure out from them the cadence of meetings. You know, are we meeting once a month? Are we meeting every other week? Are we meeting only quarterly? Uh, it, once you figure that out, then try to break it down into, okay, what are the things that we need to do to help achieve a successful relationship? That's kind of the approach I do. And so sometimes, you know, it could be an informal meeting. Sometimes it's a very formalized, uh, you know, relationship for a short period of time. Sometimes we're talking about multiple years, but helping define all that, figuring out the goals. I think that should be the first meeting that you should do. And as a mentee, you can help structure that as well. You know, let's say it's an inexperienced mentor. They can still end up being a great mentor, but maybe they haven't had the decades worth of mentorship experience that other mentees have. But, you know, this is where a mentee can help and say, hey, I, I want to go in and, you know, we want to make the best of this. Let's start defining some of the goals and everything that we can help achieve in that first year. Hopefully that helps answer that question about kind of an approach of, you know, how, how to get, get into that mentor-mentee relationship right from the start. I have a hypothetical situation then. Sure. <laughs> say, say, I'm your, say I'm your mentee. I come to you, my, Dr. Varghese, I have no idea what I want to do, but I know I want a career in medicine. So how do you go about helping that mentee who may not have much direction find where to point their compass? <laughs> wow, that's a challenging situation and everything. I think first off, I, I think in a situation like that, I try to help identify what are particular things, where are your strengths? You know, I know some people always try to start with your weaknesses and say you need to work on your weakness. I always try going through your strengths because there are certain fields that dovetail nicely into your strengths. So, for example, if you are a person who can make quick decisions, even with an uncertain amount of information ahead of you, special, certain fields like anesthesia or surgery will be well aligned for yourself. On the other hand, if you are a person who needs all the information at hand, then you know one of some of our medical specialties may be better suited for you, and a, and a field like anesthesia won't be better suited for you. So part of that is just trying to figure out, you know, what are your strengths or what are the things that you naturally are good at, and then seeing if I can help steer you towards a thing. Now that's an imperfect process; it doesn't exactly work each and every single time, but it is something to really start thinking about. Like if you have absolutely no idea what to do. Now, if the other aspect of that is if you don't truly know what to do, then maybe when you're going into your residencies, you're going into a broader residency. You know, for myself, you know, I knew I wanted to do surgery, but I wasn't 100% sure what surgical specialty I wanted to do. So for somebody like myself doing a general surgery residency, it made all the sense in the world. You know, it took me a while. It was really the beginning of my third clinical year before I made the decision to go into CT surgery, but it took me a while. You know, I was one of those individuals, every rotation, I loved the rotation. There were aspects of that field that I liked. And so it took me a while to make that. Now, 
there are different specialized pathways. You know, you hear about integrated thoracic pathways or integrated plastics. Or those are individuals who know more often than not going into medical school. They know exactly what specialty they want. They've had unique experiences in college and high school. They've had interactions with people in their life. Like they know exactly what specialty they want. And if it's somebody like that self, that's easy. Then you just need to guide them into the right direction and make sure. Do they have all the tools and everything to succeed at that? But I think that that hypothetical situation, like if you're completely unsure, I think one being honest about it, you know, don't come to a meeting and then say something like you think I want to hear. Just be, hey, I have no idea where the heck to go. And then somebody like myself will say, okay, great. Let's now take a step back and say, what are things you enjoy doing in life? You know, let's take a look at different situations. When you go out with your friends, do you know exactly what restaurant you want to go to how do you go about finding that the situation do you, you are there certain things that, you know, it, it, and it gives you kind of light bulb moments of ah this is a person who uh, I, i'm looking at the first three google searches look around great i'm done boom i'm out of here <laughs> make a quick decision right away there are maybe other situations where you're like no no i'm going to spend a couple days really looking you know it, there are tips that you can do that's an imperfect process but at least it's a start I think that that's kind of thing. And that may end up taking several meetings. You know, this is, you know, I'm throwing out a situation right now in the middle of a podcast interview, but this is something that you may take two or three different meetings really to figure out. And that's fine. That part of it is, and maybe that's part of our mutual goal is to help you realize what specialty you want to go into. Now, obviously you want to be respectful of time, you know, because mentors don't have infinite amount of time that they could spend with their mentees. And so you really want to say is that, okay, in this next half hour, this is what we're going to talk about different things. And then at the end of the half hour, these are some homework act activities that I'm going to do to go off on my own to learn so that the next meeting, we can continue the conversation in a more robust manner. So we talked a little bit about being a great mentee and a great mentor. What are one or two things uh, on either side of that coin that you think, you know, is a really great trait or piece of advice for a mentee or mentor to really have that relationship flourish and have a good relationship between those two? Great question. I, I think that one of the, my favorite frameworks that I use, um, you know, we use, throw around the word feedback very, very willy nilly and not really knowing what the heck feedback is. So the framework I really like is John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R. Um, he, he wrote a book called Measure What Matters. And in that book, he introduced the concept of OKR, Objectives and Key Results. And the reason why he put that framework in there is it's a way to structure the way the meetings go. That is, is that you identify what goal or objectives you're going to do, and then you identify the key results, like how, well, how do you know that you've met those objectives? But the biggest thing around that is you have to de define a time element as measured in, in what amount of time. So uh, let's say that I'm uh, mentoring somebody who's, you know, applying for a, um, you know, like an R21 NIH grant. You know, that's something where there's a defined time period there. You know, we know when the grant deadline is. You're trying to figure out what the objectives are to meet, to make the, meet the criteria to submit for those grants. But part of that is what are the experiments or the studies that you need to do? What is the baseline information that you do to be able to meet that? And part of that hard conversation could be, wait a minute, you don't have the baseline data. You don't have enough information. This is not going to be a competitive grant. And if that indeed is the hard conversation somebody like myself has to do, then I have to be able to give them that feedback. Um, as an aside, 
one of the best examples of feedback is something that you and I see if you drive a car, you see this all over the place. And that is like, if you're going through a school speed zone and you see that school speed zone speed limit and right above there is a radar uh, that tells you exactly what your speed uh, speed that you're going in your vehicle. That is the best example of feedback I think is out there. And the reason is, is that the expectation is set. Okay. It's, 20 miles per hour in this school speed zone. They're telling you exactly what you are doing at that period of time. And then it gives you the power to say, am I going to continue at that speed if I'm going faster than speed? Okay, maybe I should slow down. Or am I going to chance it and pray and hope that there's not a cop around the corner about to give me a a ticket? And I think that that's a simple way of saying is feedback should be, you know, it should be, you know, you should, everybody should know what the expectations are. Everybody should know how you're doing in that moment. And then you should also know what the consequences are if you meet that moment or not. And I think that part of that thing is it's that framework, you know, the setting the framework for the mentor side, feedback, being very, very good and direct at giving that feedback. And I think on the mentee side, the success is the ability to receive feedback. It is very hard to get criticism from anybody. I don't care who it is, your loved ones, your family members, your mentor, it is very, very difficult to get feedback. The people who succeed are able to receive that hard critical feedback and know that if that person truly has our best interests in heart, they can respond to that feedback and then do better. But that the art of giving feedback and the art of receiving feedback and doing something productive with it, I think that is really at the heart of what a good mentor-mentee relationship is. So I want to kind of ask this next question in a little bit of a roundabout way and it's tangentially related to being a good mentor and mentee so one one thing i struggle with is is in my future career i want to be able to help those who have not been able to help themselves whether that be through my research through my clinic or through my mentorship and so when we're talking about you know encouraging people from minority populations who want to become say physician scientists which is not always a career that they consider i i kind of struggle because as somebody who wants to promote that for them, I'm not the kind of person that they need to see in that position. One of our previous guests had said something that stuck with me, and that was representation uh, doesn't just matter, it is everything. And I don't technically represent the minority population. So how, basically, how can someone like me, who does not represent the minority, be an ally to those who are in the minority population and who want to become these, these follow like our career footsteps as physicians or physician scientists. Sorry, a long-winded question to kind of get no, no, it's something a, that like I struggle with a uh, lot. Fantastic question. I mean, I, and I think it's the, the heart of a lot of what we're doing these days uh, to be. So I think the thing to step back is, you know, what is the true definition of being an ally? You know, I think that's what the heart of part of your question is. Um, so an ally is somebody who builds a culture of inclusion. That's what an ally is. Um, and so, of course, a leader is somebody who betters the culture for those that they lead. So it's not too hard to realize that being an ally is a leadership skill. So I think that for all of us, we are trying to build a better world than what we have today, right? Our, our philosophy, our mantra is, are we better today? than we were yesterday? Are we going to be better tomorrow than we are today? And how do we achieve that? 
And so I think, you know, a lot of these are principles that you've, both of you've actually shared in past podcasts and interviews as well. You know, I think being empathetic, I think having empathy is somebody, I think that was a very common theme that I heard in past podcast interviews. It's a very common thing that leaders, you know, espouse to. That is that they look around the world and they say that, hey, I don't understand this. How do I go about trying to understand the situation better? Uh, you know, how do I try to then make that, build that culture of inclusion? Uh, I, I think that that's kind of one of the things. And part of it is identifying common goals. Part of it is admitting when you don't know something, and that is totally fine. Uh, but then if you don't know something, how do you go about changing that? So how do you get better informed or how do you learn or how do you connect with other leaders who have better examples as well? I live in the state of Utah where, you know, Utah has probably the highest white population in the entire United States. Uh, but we as an institution, as the University of Utah, have put as part of our principles, you know, we are building a culture of diversity and culture of inclusion. So how do you marry one with the other? Well, part of it is recruitment and trying to build better, you know, uh, you know, cultural practices and trying to make sure that it's, you know, diversity doesn't end just because you hired the next minority faculty member. Now you have to make sure that that faculty member thrives in the environment. You know, it's not just because, you know, you don't just check off and say, oh, how many black Americans do I have on, on my faculty? Okay, check mark. That it doesn't end. And so I think part of being an ally is just like with leadership, it's a lifelong journey. And so I think caring, making sure that you want to build that better world, and then always seeking to do better each and every single day. That's the starting point. And then I think on top of all of that is when we make mistakes, and trust me, we all will make mistakes in this space, admitting this mistake, apologizing for this mistake, and then committing to make sure we do better the next time. And I've certainly made a ton of mistakes in, in my career, but I, I think that part of the, the, the leader's job is to learn from those mistakes and say, how do we come back? How do we get better going forward? It's a messy process. I, I think it's just... You know, there's a, there's a term in the military called uh, embrace the suck. You you embrace the messiness. You just go out there and say, this is going to be messy, but this is going to lead to better world for all of us. We're going to jump right in. And then when we make a mistake, we apologize. And then we learn from the mistake and then try to move on. You brought up saying you don't know when you're unsure of something and being comfortable with saying you don't know. And I've noticed this as I transitioned from third year med school to fourth year med school. Third year, you know, you're brand new to every situation, every rotation. And so, I mean, it's totally okay to say, I don't know all the time. And then you go to fourth year and you're doing your elective rotations and, and it seems, and I'm, I'm sure it's not, but as a student, it seems less okay to say, I know, because it's what you're going into and you should sure. know some of these things. And, and I imagine as you move further and further into your career, it seems even more or less okay to say, I don't know. And so how do you as a leader in your field and, and as a leader at a university still be comfortable with saying, I don't know, and, and I'm unsure and still maintain a confidence about you, about the things you do know and, and in your position? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, when they're turning to you for advice and you're like, I have no idea what the heck is going on. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I think it depends on the situation, you know? Um, so we're, you know, two years plus into a pandemic right now. Obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, many of us were like, it was an emergency crisis situation. 
And we had to make hard decisions about, do we need to shut down certain aspects of the institution, the clinical practice? How do we continue going forward and try to care for our patients if we're not sure about the safety of things? So those are situations where you can't just end and say, I don't know, and stop right there. That's something where, okay, I don't know, but this, these are the things I do know. Okay, I'm going to make some decisions with the tiny amount of limited information that we had. So at the beginning of the pandemic, pandemic declaration happened on March 16, 2020. You know, here at the University of Utah, just like many institutions, we shut down clinical operations for two weeks. And the reason we did that is we had to make 100% sure, did we have all the PPE supplies? Did we have all the policies and principles and procedures in place? We had to make sure that if we were going to deliver care for everybody, employees, our patients, we needed to make sure that we had all the processes in place to create that safe environment. Now, in retrospect, was that the right answer? I, I honestly don't know if that was the right answer or not. But with the information that we had at that time, that is why we, uh, you know, and I, I do it the collectively because I didn't make this decision by myself and other leaders didn't make it. You know, we had a council, a leadership council. We all collectively made that decision of that is what we needed to do at that period of time. Now, the good Lord knows we've made a ton of mistakes during this pandemic. I mean, there have been some things that have been great, you know, getting vaccines to market in a record amount of time with, uh, you know, before not utilizing the technology, the mRNA vaccine, getting it. That is probably one of the greatest scientific advances that we've ever seen in our lives. The fact that we are failing absolutely miserably on a global scale about equity of the vaccine distribution is mind boggling in, in the present. I mean, is why, you know, you want to be able to eliminate any new variant coming, coming out there, vaccinate the world. We're not there yet. I mean, it's amazing that two and a half years into this pandemic, we're still not there yet. And so I think that, you know, history will judge all of us to say that these are things we did right and these are things wrong. So I think it's a greater example of saying that it's fine to say you don't know, but you don't know doesn't mean that you don't act. You know, and I think that leadership is a very dynamic, active process. And depending on the situation, if you're in an emergency, if you're in a crisis, you have to act. That you can't sit there and say, I don't know, throw your hands up and say, I'm not going to do anything. You have to do something as a leader. That is by definition. And I think that as physicians, every single one of us are in a leadership role. I mean, that is you know, the expectations, fairly or unfairly, uh, the expectations on all of us as physicians is a lot higher. The bar is set way high. It's part of the process that attracts many of us, you know, is like, hey, we are in roles that can actively help our fellow human being. But it's a high bar. And I think that that is something that you have to just, uh, you know, embrace in the sense that there is going to be situations where you don't know all the answers, but that you don't know doesn't necessarily mean you don't act. You have to figure out what is the best for the people that you're leading? What is the best for the organization or the community that you're part of? And then you have to sit back and say, you know, this is the information I know. This is the information I don't know. Um, do I have the, uh, the luxury of time? Great. If I do, I, I go and try to get more data. Oh, wait, I don't have the luxury of time. Well, then I have to make a decision right now. And that may or may not be a right decision, but you have to make some decision. I mean, I, I, I joke around with our medical students and our fellows and our trainees all the time. I always say MD says make decisions. And so I say that, you know, and it's just kind of a reminder to say that when you're calling me with a new consult or something like that, I don't want just a transmission of, oh, there's a patient in the emergency room who has a fever. Okay, I want to know what you're thinking and what do you think should be done. Now, I, as an attending, may 
agree with you or may disagree with you, but at least you need to make that attempt of making a decision and then we can help course correct you uh, on the on the back end. Dr. Fargis, I feel like I have a lot of follows to that, but I feel like this podcast could go on for hours and hours if we go. It's all good. <laughs> so, so the best time, right? <laughs> we um we like to wrap up our podcast with two questions, and the first of those being, um, what advice do you for young medical trainees who want to be leaders in their in our field? Yeah, I think the first thing is the realization that we are living in the greatest time in history. It, it's a it's a tremendous amount. You know, there is so much information out there. It is so easy to connect with people all over the world. There are things like podcasts and books and literature out there that you can learn from. It is, a, I, I, you know, I'm old enough that I think back when I was in grade school and I was crossing the street into the public library and looking up the Dewey Decimal System and trying to figure out and finding out is the book even there in the library or not. Oh, wait, it's not there and requesting the library. Hey, can I have access to this book? And it takes two weeks later. Now you can, the information is at your fingertips. You can just pull out your smartphone and everything there. So I think the first thing is the realization that we we live in the best of times um, is one of those things, you know, and that gratitude of being in these times and gratitude of having the opportunities at hand. I think the second thing is realistic expectations is this is messy. Um, I think that especially if you're in a quest to change the world for the better, uh, I think that, you know, you're going to have great successes and you're going to have absolutely miserable failures. You know, I, I'm a person, you know, even though I'm NIH R1 funded right now and everything, I had 21 grant rejections before I got my first grant approved. You can imagine, you know, when when 21 times when somebody's coming to you and keep telling you, like, yeah, this is not good enough. No, this is not getting funded. And then trying to come back. Is that resiliency? Is that just stubbornness? I have no idea what it is. But I think that, you know, you guys had talked about that. I think there was a, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, you had a season one uh, recap, uh, you know, podcast where you guys were talking about some of that, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, that bouncing back or being resilient is one of the yeah. things that you guys talked about. Uh, that feels well. like so long ago. <laughs> 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 but I think that, you know, appreciating the opportunities at hand and being resilient or bouncing back, I think is a second piece of it. And then the third thing is seek your tribe members, I think is the final thing. There are a lot of great human beings out in this world. And there is a tribe out there of uh, people who are similar to you, who may be in your same med school, they may be in other institutions, they may be in a different country. There are people out there who are looking to try to do similar achievements and goals. Try to find those tribe members. And I think that, you know, it's, you know, you go farther uh, together. I think that trying to find those tribe members really help the, the experience to be all that richer. I think that those are the three pieces of advice that I'd give to everybody. Hopefully listening to this podcast and then, you know, making the world a better place for all of us. Thank you. Those were really great um, tips and tricks and, ideas to for us to think about moving forward. Um, you mentioned your bookshelf behind you and how much you love to read. Uh, what are a couple books that you would suggest for us to read and for medical leaders to take a look at? Wow, there's there's so many out there. <laughs> it's, it's a, wow. Yeah, I think I, let me think about this for a little bit. You know, um, there, uh, St- uh, Stephen Covey, uh, you know, every, everybody talks about his dad, uh, you know, uh, about the seven an effective habits of uh, highly 
effective leaders like but his son wrote a great book recently called about the the four levels of uh, execution you know about the, the discipline of execution in that work i think those two books really go ha hand in hand um you know i i think that uh, there's some other classic you know uh, Peter Drucker has written some great books. I mean, there's a lot of different things um, that are out there, but you know, some of the principles and everything then get echoed in other people's work um, as well. You know, Simon Sinek is a very recent author of mine that is, uh, you know, uh, very favorite. You know, he, I love this book. Start with why. You know, it's like you know, whenever you think about change efforts and everything, you start why you try to see what what you're gonna the what what you're gonna accomplish, and then the how is the in, in, in between. Um, as well. And then Adam Grant, I think, is, is a great author who's written several books out there. I, I think the, those are some of the examples. Uh, those are those that just come to mind. I mean, they're like I said, there's there's so many. Um, I'm one of these, I, I like to call them leadership dabblers. You know, sometimes I'll follow something and then I'll be like, oh, wait, you know, the one minute manager books from Ken Blanchard, that was like a favorite like a decade ago. And then I'm like, oh, Oh, maybe there are certain aspects that I agree with and maybe not so much nowadays. And then I've gravitated to somebody else like Simon Sinek or Adam Grant. And that's totally fine. I think that part of the process is trying to find some favorites, following those people for a period of time and then changing it. That's totally fine. Uh, and whether it's servant leadership or situational leadership or, you know, uh, people who love social justice leadership, all those things are fine. And you may have some favorites and those tastes may evolve. But the fun part of this lifelong process is that that's that's great. It's great that you continue to have everything, but it is, it's also a reflection of you're constantly learning and trying to get brand new information as part of your armamentarium. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We know you're super busy and we really appreciate you sitting down and espousing all this great knowledge for us and our listeners. No, I thank both of you. I, I think that uh, you know the purpose of this podcast is the fact that you, you both identified a fantastic need we need more leadership principles as part of our med school curriculum. Um, and the fact that I'm a big fan of all the, the authors that you've, uh, and the, uh, the people that you've interviewed uh, over, over the years. And so kudos to both of you for doing this work and look forward to the work ahead. Thank you. Thank you.